We're continuing on in our Lost the Plot series, where if you have been with us over the last couple weeks, we have been looking at, like the video said, this moment in the life of the early church where Stephen, who was uh, a leader that was raised up to help uh, widows who were going without food to be able to get what they needed. He was a, a powerful preacher and defender of the belief that Jesus was the resurrected Messiah. He was saying the wrong things in the wrong places to the wrong people. He kept on uh, going to synagogues, especially Greek-speaking synagogues in Jerusalem, and, and announcing that Jesus was the Messiah. He was the one who would come as the fulfillment of God's promises to his people, part of God's restoration of his creation back to himself through the Messiah. And what we find interesting is these uh, people who don't like what Stephen's saying, they bring up false charges against him. False charges like Stephen's saying that they're going to tear down the temple or they're going to set aside the law of Moses. Two very important things for Jews in the first century where you kind of understand why they would get upset about those charges, where They're living in a time and a place in the Roman Empire where their religious liberty is kind of on thin ice. Their ability to worship God the way they want to in their temple, like that, that's heavily regulated. And they're lucky to be able to to do it uh, under the, the iron fist of the Romans. They remember not long ago in their past when, when Greek warlords came and took over the area and they, uh, they forbid Jews from obeying the law of Moses. And so, understandably, it's a sore spot for them when someone comes proclaiming a Messiah and a new leader, but with it comes the suspicion about what is the use of the temple or what is the use of the law. All of a sudden, they become quite defensive about this uh, new teaching that is going on. But what's amazing about Stephen is he, like, the guy's got a backbone. Like, he stands up for what he believes. He's proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah. He's not backing down, even in the face of an execution by stoning outside the city gates. These were big charges being brought against him. And as they, they bring these charges and they ask him, what, what do you have to say for yourself? His answer is to tell them the story of their history as God's people. To remind them of the bigger picture and how they have missed what's going on. How they have lost the plot by their focus on the temple and on the law rather than what God is doing ultimately through Jesus. So we've been looking at this, and, and what's interesting about this sermon that Stephen preaches in his defense is it walks through the Old Testament. And so we've been given an opportunity, really, to look at some Old Testament stories that otherwise, you know, we may not spend a whole lot of time in that part of the Bible. And so we are going to be looking at Stephen's speech and the stories connected to it as he offers his defense Uh, in his trial. And so we're picking up in Acts chapter 7. We're going to start in verse 1 and go through to the end of verse 8. Then the high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? To this he replied, brothers and fathers, listen to me. 
the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even enough ground to set his foot on. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at the time Abraham had no children. God spoke to him in this way. For 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, God said. And afterwards, they will come out of that country to worship me in this place. And now the section we're focusing on this week. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision, and Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. Now, I can tell that I've lost some of you already uh, because we're talking about circumcision. What is with this whole thing? Well, we are looking at events that took place thousands of years ago in ancient cultures of the Near East. Now, we, we can sometimes like sanitize them as like, all right, these are the Bible stories, right? But we need to remember the time and place in which they took place. That God approached a man who lived in, in, like in obscurity in the Middle East, this random guy that God calls Abraham and says, listen, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to use your descendants to bless all the nations of the earth. I'm going to give you a land that will be your, your descendants' inheritance. And uh, I am going to give you so many kids that it's going to be like the stars in the sky. This was God's promise to this man named Abraham, who was the father of the Jewish people. And as we talked about last week, Abraham believed God's promise. Even when it, like, it is a crazy, ridiculous promise. That God makes to a man who at the time is 75 years old and he doesn't end up actually having this child until he's 99 and his wife is up there with him. Like, this is miraculous things that God is bringing about. He, Abraham had reason to disbelieve what God was promising, but Abraham believed. It was imperfect faith. And as we touched on last week, Abraham and Sarah, they kind of like went out of their way, you know, a decade or two into waiting on God to bring the children that they promised, they were promised, and they kind of go out on their own way of, of bringing in a third party into the bedroom in order to get her pregnant, that maybe she would be the one who would bear a child for Abraham. The story of Hagar, which brings with it all kinds of difficulty. And so Abraham has a son with Hagar, this Egyptian slave woman, that is not the child that God had promised that they would have. And there's all kinds of hurt and confusion that is brought out by that. But God approaches Abraham again. And in Genesis 17, 
He says this, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you and generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. And in verse 10 it says, And this is my covenant with you and your descendants after you. The covenant you are to keep, every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. Here's what's happening. We're going to talk about two things today. We're going to talk about covenant and we're going to talk about the test that Abraham experiences. A covenant is a fancy way of saying like a very important contract or vow or agreement. The the language of covenant takes, like it comes from, from legal language from the ancient Near East where like a king and his kingdom would make a covenant, would make a contract with another area to say, we're going to protect you from military invasion. We're going to kind of... I will be your king and and we will protect your area, but in exchange for that, this is what I'm requiring of you. Maybe it's you must deliver this amount of wheat to help feed the kingdom, or you must pay homage in in gold or, or whatever it was. It was a contract. But God makes this covenant with Abraham where he is promising, listen, I've made these promises of of land, of descendants, of blessing. And I'm committed to it. I'll I'll put it in writing, so to speak. We'll make a contract, a covenant. And what he asks of Abraham as his response to the covenant is, I want you to walk with me and follow me, and I want you to circumcise your males as a sign of this covenant. Now, why circumcision? Like it seems very out of the blue for us as 21st century North Americans. What does that have to do with being in relationship with God? Well, think about God's promise to Abraham was that you are going to have generations and generations of descendants that come after you. The the fact is, God is expecting them like, you are not going to be able to reproduce without being reminded of my promise to you. That this is going to be a way that you you stand out, that you are seen as different, that you can't forget my promise. God asked for the males to be circumcised. The idea of having descendants is significant for Abraham. And it's significant throughout the whole book of Genesis. In my last kind of reading through that whole book, the language of descendants or offspring or seed, like that, the theme is just on constant repeat. And it all traces back to the Garden of Eden. Remember when Adam and Eve, they disobey God, they believe the snake who says, you will not surely die. That God actually doesn't want what's best for you. You can be like God if you eat the forbidden fruit, right? And after all that happens and God uh, approaches them and confronts them about it, he says something about the serpent. He says, uh, I will create enmity between your offspring and the woman's, and you will strike his heel and he will crush your head. That there is a promise that God makes that there will be a descendant of Eve 
who becomes the one who crushes the head of the serpent. Essentially saying, one who reverses the chaos that is brought into God's creation from the first sin and disobedience. Throughout Genesis, we see this theme, okay, a descendant is promised. And so we're wondering, all right, is that descendant Cain and Abel who come a generation later? No. And then generations come and generations come and descendants come and go and we're left with this aching question of who is this descendant who is going to crush the head of the serpent? What is the generation that is going to come where this happens? And God's promise to Abraham is, I will give you descendants and generations after you. It's the same language. It's this promise that that something is going to happen from your offspring that is going to be God's redeeming work of crushing the head of the serpent. And so we pick that up here. That descendants cannot be created without being reminded of God's promise. The whole thing with circumcision was it was a way of constant reminder of God's promise and commitment to his people. For an old man and his aged wife who had no business having kids naturally, God's promise was to remind them that that can still happen. Now, this was a big deal in the early church centuries later, right? Where the Jewish people, that has been their practice of identifying as God's people through the practice of circumcision. And all of a sudden, after Jesus is crucified and is resurrected, there's a spread of the news of, of the gospel in the Eastern Mediterranean. And all of a sudden, people who aren't Jewish start believing in Jesus as their Savior and, and, and Lord. And so they are kind of in this weird cultural conflict of, so do these non-Jewish people need to get circumcised too, even though they're not the lineage of Abraham in order to be part of the family? Do you need to become Jewish in order to receive the blessing of the Jewish Messiah? And this, this nearly split the early church. Like we look at the early church and we think of like, oh, how great would it have been to be kind of like in on the ground floor and see all this stuff that was happening. There was conflict. Like it, it wasn't necessarily like this, this glossy, pretty time to be around. Like there was deep disputes, especially over this issue. For, for the Jewish followers of Jesus who they've always been told you need to, to be circumcised and be obedient to the law. And now for non-Jewish people who are wrestling through, so is like getting baptized also going to be like a circumcision thing? Like it, what is required in order to be in and part of the family? And the early church decided that Gentiles don't need to, to have their, their children circumcised or to be circumcised to be part of the family of God. And so even for us, our commitment to Jesus is not determined by decisions we make about our sons when they're born. Circumcision is not the thing in our relationship to God through Jesus that it was for the Old Testament Jews whose relationship to God was through his promise to Abraham. Now, if that conversation was uncomfortable for us, it's about to get even more uncomfortable. Because we're going to talk about the test that God gave Abraham. 
after this, this covenant of circumcision that God makes with Abraham, Abraham gets circumcised and his son that he had with the Egyptian slave does as well. And all the men that are in their camp. It was a rough six weeks afterwards. Which was the whole thing. There's a story, this is a rabbit trail. There's a story in Genesis where the descendants of Abraham make a whole city get circumcised in order to kind of like be on good terms with them. And while the men are all like recovering from the process, they use their vulnerability to come in and, and attack them and like take over the city. It, like Old Testament, man, it's like it's R-rated. It's rough stuff. <laughs> but after the covenant of circumcision, there's a time later where eventually... Sarah does get pregnant, and she's, she's old, and she bears a son, and, and like she's chuckling about the fact that God's promising her to have a baby to the point where God says, you're going to name the son Isaac, which means laughter, because you're laughing about the fact. And so they have this son, Isaac, that God says, this is the child that I'm giving you as fulfillment of my promise. You have descendants, and from Isaac, there are going to be all kinds of descendants that come afterwards. We read in our our passage in Acts that Isaac becomes the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of the 12 patriarchs, that through Isaac, God's promise of many descendants is coming about for Abraham. And after Isaac is born, he grows up a bit, and then God approaches him again. We read this in Genesis chapter 22, where it says, And sometime later God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, Take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. What is going on? God who promised a child to Abraham and Sarah, and when they went their own way and and kind of brought in a surrogate to make it happen, God's like, no, that's not what I promised. I will give you a child. And so God finally gives them this child after waiting 25 years after God makes the initial promise. And this child is is barely older than a boy. And God says, Abraham, I want you to sacrifice that son to me as a burnt offering on this mountain. Who is this God? Why would he ask this? And so what happens is Abraham the next morning packs up with Isaac. And they go on a donkey with some servants and they travel three days to the region of Moriah. Three days of walking with his son, contemplating what God is asking him to do. And they get there to the base of the mountain and Abraham tells the servants, wait here, we'll be back. And so he puts the wood on Isaac's back and they climb up the mountain together. They build an altar and Isaac asks, where is the offering? Where is the lamb that we're going to sacrifice to God? And Abraham says, God will provide the sacrifice. 
And they get up to the top of the mountain. They build the altar. They place the wood that Isaac bore onto the altar. And Abraham ties up his son, places him on the altar, pulls out his knife to kill him as a sacrifice. And God tells him to stop. This story is like understandably, like it's shaking. Like uh, imagining being asked that of my own child. It's hard for me to wrap my head around. And it's hard for me to understand a God who would ask such a thing. But again, we need to think like the ancient Near Eastern cultures that this was written in and to as we work through this difficult story, this test. What I think is happening in this story, and this isn't just me, there's, there's smarter people than me who have written on this, that this story that seems so out of character for God is purposefully so. In fact, Abraham, I think, has this suspicion that God actually doesn't want him to go through with it. We, we see two moments in the story where Abraham hints that he has this faith that God is going to step in somehow. After walking three days with Isaac to this mountain, at the bottom of the mountain when he leaves the servants, he says, wait here, we will be back. Interesting the way he words it. Maybe we could pass it over and say, well, maybe he you know, just doesn't want to alarm the, the servants. But even as... Isaac asks him, where is the lamb that's to be sacrificed? Abraham's answer is, God is going to provide the sacrifice. But what I find amazing, even if Abraham has this suspicion, he was still willing to walk through and go through with it. He, 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 was, he was willing to go through with it to the point where he is there with his knife in the air to sacrifice the promised son that God had given him. But God says, stop. What I think God is doing in this story is he is showing that despite what the understanding of the gods in the ancient Near East was, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, is not like that. If you look at the, the religions of the ancient Near East, whether it's Babylonian, whether it is uh, Canaanite, Akkadian, Persian, like the, the, the cultures around at that time and the gods that they worshipped were gods that required these kinds of sacrifices. And what we see in this story is God using this moment to show Abraham, listen, I don't know what kind of ideas you have about who God is, but let me correct that for you. That what I want is not for you to sacrifice your children to me, but I want you to follow me wholeheartedly and to be willing to lay down everything for me. I don't want you to kill your kid, but I want you to follow me wherever I'm asking you to go. There's something interesting as well in this story where God tells Abraham to 
bring his son Isaac. It says his only son, which is interesting because Isaac's not the only son. He's not even the first son. But the language in this is emphasizing uh, it's, a, it's a term of irreplaceability, not singularity. That there's something unique about Isaac as the son of the promise versus Ishmael. That God was asking Abraham to really give him the thing that was most valuable to him. The one in whom the promise would continue. The one from whom the blessing would be uh, poured out to the nations. The one who, through whom his descendants would inherit the land that God had promised to Abraham. God is asking him to give what is most important to him over to God. The good things that God gives us can easily become idols to us. And so I think what we see in the story of Abraham and Isaac is God confronting that and reminding us that even though he gives us good things, we can sometimes put those good things in the place of God in our life. And I think the, the big question for us is are we willing to release even the good things we're given back to God? To say, God... I am grateful for what you have given me, but ultimately, it's yours. Uh, we, we had a, a FaceTime call with um, my in-laws uh, a week ago, and my father-in-law said something really profound that, that's been sticking with me ever since. Is he, he talked about a moment in his life as a father where he came to a realization that my kids are gods before they're mine. that ultimately the outcome of their life is in God's hands. That ultimately I, I am a, someone who temporarily has them in my care and under my influence, but ultimately God is the one who holds them and their future and their life and will walk with them through all of their decisions of their life. Ultimately the things that we have are God's. And would we be willing to take them off the place of God in our life and offer them to him to say, listen, take it or leave it. If we had to choose between being faithful to God or to keeping the dream job that we love, would we be willing to set the job aside? And, and here's the thing, is most of us will never be faced with that situation. But it is important for us to regularly be asking ourselves that question. Like, is this thing taking the place of God in my life? Am I worshiping the gift rather than the giver of it? Do we love the things God gives us more than God himself? So something that I've experienced in my own life and going through Bible college and seminary is, is do I love theology more than I love the one that we're studying about? Do I love worship music more than the one that I'm singing to? 
Do we love the comfort of our lifestyle more than the, the God who is inviting us out of it into what he's calling us to? Are we willing to release it back to him? Would we be willing to not withhold anything from God and say, God, it's all yours. Do with it what you want. After the incident with Abraham, God says this in Genesis 22, verse 12. He says, do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. God sees Abraham's heart and his devotion. God is asking for our devotion, not for us to sacrifice our kids extravagantly. Not, not to just like give everything up and live as a monk. But he's asking for our devotion in the place that we're at, to ask, is anything else taking the space of God in our life? Because that's what he did for us. This, this passage is linked with uh, words that Paul says in the book of Romans. When he's writing to the first century church in the capital of the Roman Empire, Paul says this, What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for all of us, will he not with him also give us everything? God was willing to offer his son who would be the sacrifice that takes our place who would be the one who carried the wood up the hill for his own sacrifice. The one who would return three days later. The one whose sacrifice and him acting as substitute shows us the true character of our God in comparison to all the other powers and influence out there. We have a God who stepped in for the sacrifice to offer the substitute. So in our lives where we constantly are battling with losing the plot, of setting our attention and our focus, maybe even on the things that, that God has us doing that become God in our life, are we losing the plot by letting those things take God's place? And would we be willing to give up those good things God has given us if it means we get to know and see him more clearly? I think part of this is what Stephen is confronting the, the high priest and the leaders of the synagogue and the Sanhedrin about in his speech. You're accusing me about terrorizing the temple and about laying aside the law. But maybe these good things that God has given you, you have put them in the place of God and you have ignored the work that God is doing himself. What is it for us? 
What are the good things that God has given us that we have put in the place of God? What is God inviting us to lay down on the altar to say, God, this is yours. Ultimately, it's yours. Let's pray. God, it's in these difficult moments in Scripture that we, uh, we have to wrestle with the hard stuff. The hard stuff of what you are inviting us into as your people, that, that you have made a way for us, you love us, you have pursued us, and you invite us into a life that is full because you are the source of it. God, we, we try to fill ourselves up on all kinds of things, but you are really the only one who satisfies God, for the things in our own lives that we have placed on your throne in our hearts, I pray that we would be able to lay them down. That we would surrender it to you, knowing that you are the one worthy of our devotion and of our life and of our worship. Take your place on the throne of our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.